0: Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, and, of, and as some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. Verse 29, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius a member of the Arapagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks for your word, and we ask now as we look into it that you would give us wisdom and understanding. Father, may we leave today knowing more of you, more of ourselves, changed, so that, Father, we would impact the world for Christ. We prayed in his name. Amen. Every generation that comes along thinks that their particular time on earth is unique. Every culture thinks that their particular situation is unique. I often, um, in conversations, you hear people talking about the good old days and the way it used to be. And when I hear that, I wonder, are they they talking about the good old days like when I was a kid where you drank out of the garden hose when you got thirsty? Or... Are they talking about the you know another set of kind of good old days, right? The good old days when my grandmother, who had seven kids, did laundry for the men in the community, and she washed all of those clothes by hand. Those good old days? or or what about the good old days when um, in the political sphere, right? our politicians, our judges, Our vice presidents had duels in order to hash out their disagreements. What about those good old days? You know, uh, from the beginning of our country until about 1859, actually all the way up to 1900, dueling was the way you worked things out, right? So this is the way it would happen. Uh, Somebody would come along and they would besmirch your name in public, and uh so they would call you a uh, a scallywag and you would be hurt to the core so you would challenge that individual to a duel okay and then you and that individual if they challenge and if they if they didn't they were done they they were they they would be marked as a coward Um, And uh, and they would be sent packing. You had no career if you were challenged to a duel and you didn't enter into it. Of course, the most famous, probably the most famous duel in our country was between a, a vice president, Burr and Hamilton. Um, it happened in the early 1800s and those two came together. Uh, incidentally, when they had their duel, which was two years after Alexander Hamilton's son had been killed in a duel, alright, they used the same set of pistols. And they got together and they had their famous duel in which Hamilton is reported to have shot first and then Burr. Hamilton missed Burr hit Hamilton in the chest. The bullet lodged in his spine and he died the next day. How about those good old days? Go back to some good dueling. Bob, you can't participate, okay? What about the good old days of temples? Temple prostitutes? All sorts of unmentionable things. I won't go any deeper, okay? What about those good old days? Um, the, the, the the good old days where you had a no-kidding town center, the agora, the marketplace. You had no newspapers. You had no telephones. You had no internet. You had no billboards. You had no television. So the agora, the marketplace, was where everybody came. And day after day, What do you think they did in the marketplace? Well, they learned, but they also gossiped. They gave the latest gossip. So if you wanted in on the latest juicy tidbits, you went to the Agora. And that's where you got all the information. And that's where your bad news, your dirty laundry spread amongst the community. Like wildfire. What about those good old days? Those are the days, that's the time that the Apostle Paul lived in. And so, in the text, Paul has made his way to Athens. Now, at the time of, uh, of, uh, of the writing and of Paul's being in Athens, Athens has been a center of culture for roughly 750 years. A long time. Athens has been around a long, long time. And that is the city is still... Uh, a, a center of learning, a center of activity, uh, a place where thinkers lived. A, a very smart, intelligent um, clientele lived and worked and moved and had their being in Athens when the Apostle Paul shows up. That's the city that Paul walked into. In so many ways, not unlike our culture, educated, in many ways depraved, difficult place for somebody to live, all sorts of ideas about, about how to live, how to, what does life mean, all sorts of competing philosophies. Sound familiar? Very much like our day. Only when the Apostle Paul walked into Athens, There were no Christians there. There were no churches there. Paul walks into the city ready to announce the truth of Christianity. So let's look at the gospel for smart people. The first is, I want you to see the challenge presented. Luke tells us that when when Paul, verse 16, when he gets to Athens... He was very distressed. He was distressed because he looked around the city and he saw all of their idols. He saw all of their statues. He saw all of their temples. He saw all of this religion everywhere. And as he walks in, the text says that he was greatly distressed. The word there, greatly distressed, um, typically would be translated angered. He was upset um, he, he was kind of cut. His, you know, his heart was just wrenched within him as he looked around and he saw all of this. And so he goes to the people. Luke tells us that he went to the synagogue and there he met the Jews and the God-fearers. These are Gentiles, remember, who haven't kind of made their way all the way into Judaism. And so he went to the synagogue first and he reasoned with them and he explained to them. And then the text says he left there and he went to the marketplace, the agora. He went there in order to engage. Listen, that's where you went. You, in that day and time, you probably wouldn't go a day without going to the marketplace that's where you bought and sold and traded. That's where people with the latest and greatest ideas met. It, it, I mean, just kind of imagine coffee shops everywhere and people drinking their espresso and they're sitting out on their chairs and there's a fountain in the middle and over there is the theater and and all of it's there. And then their idols are all there and, and, and that's where you came and that's where you met. And so... If you wanted to introduce a new idea, you went to the marketplace. I don't even know. Do we have anything comparable? Not really. It's a little bit hard for us to kind of imagine. We want new ideas. We go, we Google it, right? We go to Wikipedia. We get online. If you wanted a new idea there, you went, you sat, you talked, you visited, you learned and, and, you know, What would have probably happened is you knew this group was over here, that group was over there. And and so you would go and you would make your way and you would learn. And, and, And Luke tells us that's where Paul went, to the center of Athens. Now, I don't want you to think to yourself, oh, it's Athens, it's the first century, you know, talking about a bunch of, of uh, you know, backwards, kind of ancient people, you know, just kind of making their way through life. They didn't really know a whole lot. Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey in 750 B.C. Okay? There's been a lot of learning going on in Greece from 750 BC to the first century. Pythagoras. Any mathematicians in here? He has a, a famous theorem. 571 BC. Socrates. 469. And oh, by the way, so you know what Socrates was famous for, right? He's famous for asking questions. Hey, the, so- the Socratic method of learning. Socrates made a living in the Agora. That was his place. That's where he took up residence. That's where Socrates became famous. That's how he got a name, because he went to the Agora. He went to the marketplace, and he would hold uh, his disputations. He would stand up, and he would engage the people, and he would teach them. Not long after Socrates comes Plato, 427. The two cross paths briefly. Aristotle, 367. Incidentally, Aristotle enrolled in Plato's academy in Athens. Epicurus shows up on the scene in 341 B.C. What's Epicurus known for? Epicureanism. They're in the text. So 343 B.C., Epicurus shows up and he has this idea. And he begins to propound his idea in the agora, in the marketplace. It's, it's his philosophy of living, all right? He's, he's been thinking, he's been studying, he's been reading Plato and Aristotle and Homer and all of the other big guys. He's been listening and he's been taught well. And so Epicurus comes along. And for him, life was live for today. Because when death comes, that's it. The soul dies, the body dies, and there's nothing. So why live In light of death, right? His idea was death overshadows too much of our living, so don't think about death. Because once it happens, it's done. You're over. There isn't anything after that. Now, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, he picks up this idea in 1 Corinthians 15, doesn't he? What does he say? If there is no resurrection from the dead, Paul says in Romans 15, right? If if Jesus wasn't resurrected and we won't be resurrected, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Epicureanism. Paul had learned it. He knew it. The resurrection was at the core of it. And Paul says, if the resurrection isn't true, then Epicurus is right. And you better grab all the gusto you can get. Used to be a beer commercial, right? Go for it. Epicurus lived in 341 B.C. By the time the Apostle Paul shows up on the scene, his teaching is had been around for 400 years. Everybody had heard it. They knew it. Many people held to it. But there were others. Zeno, 333. He's the father of Stoicism. Stoicism, essentially, the idea, and look, I'm I'm boiling these down, abbreviating them, right? The Stoics said, look, life is coming at you, things are happening to you, right? So we say, oh, he's, man, he's so stoic all the time. Same idea. Grin and bear it. Push through it. If the good happens, it happens. If the bad happens, it happens. And so the, the stoic essentially was saying, look, as you, as you make your way through life, as as you live through life there are things that are happening and going on around you and what you need to do is live in harmony with what with what Zeno called the divine reason he termed it the divine logos sound familiar Paul is going to take that idea of, of the logos here in a couple of minutes and he's going to put some meat on it and he's going to say that divine logos, that just something that's out there that you just want to be in harmony with and one with. And if that sounds familiar, it's because Eastern mysticism is picked up on all of that. Okay, so those two kind of ideas match up in a great way. But but Paul is going to come along and and. The New Testament writers come along and they say, "Yeah, you, you talk about the divine reason, this this something that's out there, the divine logos that's impersonal that you don't, you can't touch, you can't see, you can't feel, you just kind of experience it, and you're going to be a part of it. Let us tell you about who that divine logos is. He's a person, and his name is Jesus. And so." we'll talk more about how Paul does that but but those are the main ideas those are the those are the strands Zeno had come along just a few years after Epicurus and so those two philosophies are competing philosophies that were driving the discussion of the day so when Paul shows up in Athens it's not a blank slate when he walks into the city they have been talking about the meaning of life for over 800 years. They've been discussing philosophy. They've been asking, what does it mean to exist? What does it mean that I think? What, is, what does it matter that I'm here? Do we have a soul? Do we not have a soul? Is there an afterlife? Is there not an afterlife? And they had scads of gods. And philosophies that they could plug into. They were thinking about the big question. Do you ever think about the big question? Do you ever go out into the night and look up into the heavens? As Teddy Roosevelt said, he would normally, when he would have a big gathering of people, or they would be there at the at the White House together. When the sun would go down, he would take them out into the lawn of the White House and they would all look up into the heavens. And then after a little bit, he would say, now that we all feel small, let's go talk. He put it in perspective, right? Go in and sit down and now let's have a conversation in light of what you just looked at. It isn't that we're insignificant, it's that we're significant, but we're only significant in light of the fact that God has made all of that. That is the world that Paul was walking into. They were smart people. They were thinking people. They were living people. They wanted to know. They wanted, how do I suck the marrow from life? What does that look like? The same world we live in. What does it mean? You know, um, San Francisco is either is going to or has just erected a giant net under the Golden Gate Bridge. Why? Because so many people go to the Golden Gate Bridge To jump. Because they haven't they can't find it. The substance is not there. They've not ever been able to plug into anything that tells them this is why you're alive. This is why you're living. God a God who made you has a very personal plan for you. Everyone is looking and asking that question. Same was true. For Paul when he walked into Athens that day. So where is. How does. How does someone. An individual. Walk into. Athens. Greece. And think they have the answer. Here's the confidence that Paul had. And it's kind of a three. Threefold confidence. We'll move quickly through this. And we'll get to the last point. Three parts to Paul's confidence. First, Paul was confident that God was working. He knew that God was at work. Uh, Marion read 1 Corinthians 18 down, right? Where where Paul is looking at the world and he's saying, listen, where is the philosopher? Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? The resurrection, right, is a stumbling block. When, when, When people hit that, they oftentimes drop. It stops them because it doesn't make any sense to them because they're trying to make sense of the world in other ways. Because every other world religion, every other way tells you it's a cause and effect. You do good things, the gods reward you. You do bad things, they don't. And so that's the way most people are meandering and moving through life. And Paul understood that his confidence was in the fact that God is working. He's stumped them. He's given to us a gospel that throws men off track. The second part is, right, Paul has confidence in the power of God. In Romans 1, he says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's not him, it's not his wisdom, it's not his ability to to take somebody and to twist them into knots and to convince them that the gospel is true. Paul understands that the gospel is it and he has no power over what happens. The power is in the gospel itself. And third, Paul knew. Paul knew that God had called him, he's called believers to go and to take this foolish gospel to the world he talks about it in first corinthians chapter 4 where he talks about we have this good news in jars of clay we have this amazing power all bound up in jars of clay and the jars of clay are us and paul was saying listen it's the message it's the message not me But you've got to go. In Romans, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so Paul just went. He just poured himself out. He went right into the marketplace with the Epicureans and the Stoics and, and everybody else. And he just walked in and said, here it is. I'm going to give it to you. So, with all of those things in his back pocket, he goes confidently into the marketplace. Let's look at the last point, and it, this is the culture critiqued. And here's what Paul does. So, how many of y'all, any martial arts people in here? We got Luke over here. Luke, have you, have you done any judo? Okay. Any judo people? Well, I don't know a whole lot about judo, but I know this. The, the idea is you use the other person's movement as they come at you, okay? So in judo, as they come at you, you kind of do this number, Right? You let their weight, their motion, and, and you you learn how to utilize what they're doing against them. And that's what Paul does. Alright, and I'm going to show you how he does that. He he's doing it with thoughts, obviously, the things that they're believing. Okay, and so at at, at the Areopagus, so here's the, the Areopagus is is a place, and it is a group. So the Areopagus, I've got my Greek scholar in the back; she's going to be critiquing me is an outcropping of rocks, okay, Um, and uh, the Parthenon kind of overlooks that area. But it's a a giant outcropping of rocks, which the, the Romans called Mars Hill. So in this section, Paul goes to the Areopagus, which is what that mound was called. But the Areopagus was also a gathering of people. Smart people. Think of them like senators and the House of Representatives kind of all bound up into one with some judges thrown in and a few philosophers. Okay. And so you kind of have this group and they're called the Areopagus. That's the group that Paul is in front of. So he's gone to the marketplace and all of the people in the marketplace listened to him and they said, wow, he sounds so smart. But some of them were saying, wow, this sounds really weird. And um, but it's it's it's, it's interesting So why don't we get him to go to the Areopagus and make his presentation before them? Now, the Areopagus is this group, again, kind of a ruling class. They'd been in existence for a long time. By this point in time, even though the Romans were in control, they were still in operation. So it's kind of all the smart people. And so they bring Paul to the Areopagus. And he gets there, and you can read in the text exactly kind of what happens Verse 22, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. And as I walked around and I looked at all of your buildings and all of your stuff carefully, I saw all of your objects of worship. And I even found an altar that has an inscription on it that says, To an unknown God. I am here to tell you about the unknown God. Can you imagine? Can you you imagine what must have been going on? (laughs) They're all sitting there thinking, hmm. We've been at this for about 1700 years. And this guy shows up, and he's going to tell us about the God that we're not so sure about. He says, I see you're asking big questions. I see you're asking about the meaning of life. I've walked around. I've seen it all. And so you have all of these gods. You have all of these ways of worshiping. But somewhere along the way, someone must have thought we're missing it, right? Somewhere along the way, someone said, what if, what if, even though we have all these gods, what if we've missed one? And so ancient records record that a number of Greek cities actually had these altars in them. And it literally is an altar to a God that we're not quite sure about. Now, Paul is drawing on Psalm 19. You can turn there. But Paul knows, Psalm 19 says, right, that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech and night after night. And then he says, there is no language where their voice is not heard. Paul picks that up in Romans chapter 1. Okay, But Psalm 19, the psalmist is saying, there is nobody, Okay, and you, you can take this into the bank, there are no true atheists. Everybody believes. Psalm 19 tells us that. Paul echoes it in Romans chapter 1. Everybody believes. Why? Because they know. They walk into the night sky. They see the, they see the starry heavens. They see creation all around them. They've been to the beach. They've been to the mountains. They know in their internal core. They know that God exists. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, I know you know He exists. You've built an altar to Him. You just don't know who He is. Let me tell you who that God is. Is because you've got all of these other gods, but you're hedging your bets. And I'm going to tell you where you can put your money. You can put your money directly on the unknown God altar because that altar you've built is the altar to Yahweh. It is to the Lord. It is to Jesus Christ. And then he goes just a little bit further. Right. He pushes in. He strikes in. I know who that God is. And then what does he say? That's the God who made everything. So he made the world. He made everything in it. And he made you. And he decreed it all, he says. He foreordained it all. So what is he telling them? He's saying, listen, the God that you've built this altar to. He made all creation, and He made you, a very personal you. And He has been governing everything. He's in control of everything. That's a God who appeals to the Greek mind, right? Somebody who's powerful. What would be the most famous Greek God you can think of? Zeus. Power beyond power. And what is Paul saying? This God that I'm telling you about, he created everything. And oh, by the way, he came down to earth in the form of a man. He died and what? Was resurrected. Paul puts it all on the resurrection. He says, listen, I'm going to tell you about a God who was resurrected from the dead. And he lived, and there were witnesses, and we saw him, and he met me, I have heard him speak. And so Paul goes and he tells him all of these things. And and, and then he says, Look, he's not far off either. If you seek him, as your poets have said, in him we move. We live and move and we have our being. And then one of your other poets said, we are even his his offspring. And so Paul says, look, you've got some guys that are thinking thoughts. And the thoughts they're thinking are, there's a God out here who, in him, we live and move and have his being. They don't know who that one was attributed to, but they know the second one okay, was one of their philosophers. And what did he say? He says, We are His offspring. And Paul says, they couldn't have been more right. They're exactly right. And that God is the God of the Old Testament. It's the God I'm proclaiming to you. It's the God who sent His Son into the world, who lived and died and was resurrected from the grave. And then he says this, if we are His offspring, right, then it's not just silver and gold. He's not he's not wrapped up in all of these statues and everything you're looking at. He's a person. And if he's a person, we are people and now those two come together. And so Paul did a couple of things. He proclaimed this big God who was far off but who has come near. Exactly what scripture does, right? He is holy. He is other. He has created you. He has ordained all things. And oh, by the way, He came and He tabernacled among you. He lived among you. And that's what Paul does for them. And then he says, see, you know He exists. You can see it. You know He's there. You're reaching for Him. You're searching for Him. He is and was revealed In the Logos, the divine reason became man. And that's what Paul does. And he lays it out. And then he takes the microphone and he drops it and he walks out. Why? Because he knows all I am is the mouthpiece. I am the deliverer of the message. His confidence comes from the fact that the power of God is in the gospel message. Right? He's confident. He knows. He knows it's going to stump people. He can do nothing about that. That's the way God has ordained it. He knows that people are going to believe. And say so he really does the mic drop and he walks off. And look at the last section. What does it say? What does it say about how all of this went down? Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, tell me he didn't preach it. Some of them sneered. All right. How many times have you mentioned the gospel of Jesus Christ only to have somebody say, you really believe that junk? Some of them sneered, but, other, but others of them said, I want to know more. Tell me more. Let's get together and meet and after that Paul left the council and some of them became followers and they believed Paul walked into Athens just like you and I walk out into this world each and every day his thought was how can i proclaim the gospel i want them to hear it and so he was somewhat shrewd right he was he was careful he he utilized somebody mentioned um Somebody mentioned, uh, I think it was Caitlin's talk, and she was talking about, the, the, you know, the Athens to Athens trip. And so the group from RUF went to Athens. Who was it I was visiting with just recently? And they said, Monty Python, really? Um, yeah, kind of using the, you know, using the language of the day, using the ideas of the day, using the movies and the music. And that seems to be what this young group is doing in Athens, Greece, right? To try and reach younger people who would be interested in that sort of thing. And to ask them big questions. Do you believe? What do you think about this? And that's what Paul did. So he was reading the newspaper. He knew the word. And he went and he engaged the culture. And then he just trusted God. God, you'll do what you're going to do. Just use me. Are you looking at at life that way? First, maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're thinking, I've always just thought the resurrection was okay, whatever. Not that central. It's absolutely critical. And if you struggle with that, come talk to me. I've struggled with that at different points, and it's okay. It's okay to struggle with it. Let's talk about it. If you're here and it's the core tenet of who you are and what you believe, don't be afraid to share it. It's the power of God for salvation for those who believe. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the message this morning. As we hear it, as we look at it, sometimes it's hard. We know you're sovereign. We don't understand your ways. Father, there are loved ones in our lives that don't know the truth of the gospel yet. We want to pray for them. There are neighbors that we have, they don't know the truth of the gospel. Father, we would love for them to hear it. Would you use us, give us an opportunity to share it? Father, we plead with you, be at work in the ones we love, the ones we don't yet know. Continue to bring men and women to you by faith. They would trust in the Lord Jesus and use us as a congregation, as a people, to bear that message, to bear that love. And we know, Holy Spirit, only you can break, break in. And so break in, do your work for your glory, and always for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.